Welcome to SLP Learning Series, a podcast series presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. The SLP Learning Series explores various topics of speech-language pathology. Each season dives deeper into a topic with a different host and guest who are leaders in the field. Some topics include stuttering, AAC, sports concussion, teletherapy, ethics, and more. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Now, come along with us as we look closer into the many topics of speech-language pathology. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Making Sense of Mayo. My name is Maddie Metcalf. And I will be your speechtherapypd.com host for the podcast, Making Sense of Mayo. Before we get started, we have a few items to alert you to. This episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Our guest this evening is going to be Mary Billings. Her financial disclosures include that she receives compensations for teaching and speaking engagements through her private practice, Billings Speech Pathology Services, LLC, and learning platform, Function Focus Academy. She also receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this presentation. Her non-financial disclosures are that she is a member of the board of directors for the Oral Motor Institute and an ASHA Lifetime member. For myself, I receive an honorarium for this podcast and I do not have any relevant non-financial disclosures. Now, without further ado, we welcome back our presenter, Mary Billings. Mary is joining speechtherapypd.com again tonight. She has another 10 and a half hour course on speechtherapypd.com covering oral facial myofunctional disorders. I've taken it and highly recommend it. It is fabulous. Mary Billings, MSCCC SLPCOM, is a licensed and certified speech language pathologist through the American Speech Language and Hearing Association and the current owner of Billings Speech Pathology Services in Kansas City, Missouri. Her clinical focus is in orofacial myofunctional disorders, encompasses feeding and swallowing aversions, dysphagia, motor-based speech disorders, dentofacial, and other craniofacial abnormalities, as well as pediatric feeding. Over the years, she has developed and facilitated a multidisciplinary professional collaboration for patient care. Mary is a certified orofacial myologist and is active in leadership roles within the field. She served as the IOM's first mentoring chair from 2008 to 2013 and was subsequently elected president of the IOM, where she served as president-elect and chair of the Nonprofit Governance Committee from 2013 to 2015. She then served as president from 2015 to 2017. In 2011, she was awarded the Connie Painter Distinguished Service Award for her efforts, and in 2018, she was awarded the highly prestigious IOM President's Award for her accomplishments while in office. She was appointed to the board of directors of the Oral Motor Institute in 2016 and in 2017 was requested by ASHA to serve as a subject matter expert reviewer and update its bibliography for their practice portal on OMDs. She is a current member of ASHA, IOM, AAPMD, OMI, and AAPPSPA. She is a well-known lecturer on the topic of orofacial myofunctional disorders and has lectured extensively across the U.S. and internationally at conferences, conventions, and through webinars. She is an IOM-approved instructor for their 28-hour intensive studies course for people pursuing the COM in the field. Welcome, Mary. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast tonight. Well, thank you for inviting me, Maddie. Appreciate it. So this evening, we're going to be covering the physiology of swallowing. So for a little recap, our first episode had Linda D'Onofrio, and she gave us an overview of what Maya was. 
Last mm-hmm. week, we had Christy Gatto really give a deep dive on the craniofacial complex and why that's important as SLPs to know. And so tonight we're going to cover what is swallowing and why is it important? <laughs> so well, there you go. So whenever I start a lecture anywhere, I'm always quick to remind people that what is this for? We have two primary functions for the head, and that is to breathe, and the other is to swallow. There are millions of people today, despite the fact that we're all specialists in communication disorders, there are millions of people today who survive in our world without saying a word, without communicating a word. But all of them are able to swallow. Okay. And if we really look back at some of our neurological disorders and we look at disorders like ALS, isn't that essentially what happens is the swallow system basically deteriorates to the point where they can no longer function and that's what causes death. So when we look at the swallow, the swallow is just critical. And suck, swallow, breathe is the primary motor function that builds on the brain. It's the first motor function that builds on the brain in human anatomy and physiology. And so therefore, we know that all this swallowing stuff begins neonatally, right? So, you know, in zero to six months, you've got how the rooting reflex comes, suck, swallow, breathe, reflexes present and organizing the gag reflex begins to integrate and is present on the first third of the tongue. There's a lot of different uh, motor milestones that they're all there during those first six months of life. You know, they develop neonatally. This is true. And we can go through, I think I have something here. Hang on here a second. When we look at how these these skills develop neonatally, often wonder if people even realize that the bud of the tongue erupts in the fourth week of gestation. The fourth week of your pregnancy, we have a tongue bud. And by the eighth week, that tongue bud is actively moving. And by the 12th week of gestation, that swallow is starting to organize. And it's working in conjunction with all that craniofacial growth pattern that's going on. So at birth, all of those reflexes that have developed are moving, they're developing. So often people will say to me, you know, how do I know that this is typical versus atypical? Well, it usually shows up pretty doggone early, right? Even by six months, we have phasic bite and munch chew patterns that start. The phasic bite goes away. That assistive goes away and munch chew patterns begin to develop. So kids and are they're ready to chew. The tongue can channel itself back. Between six and 12 months, you have all lateral movements of the tongue. It can go up. It can go down. It can go side to side. And all of these movements integrate with one another. The lips are actively moving. We have dissociation of the lips and the jaw that we need for sucking and swallowing, right? There are so many milestones so that by 12 months, the gag reflex is all the way back in the back of the mouth where it is as an adult. So these are depths that we have to ensure are moving smoothly because between 12 and 24 months, all we do is facilitate that mastery right? Over and over and over so that there's the basis of a completely mature swallow by two years of age. So yes, yes, the oral phase of the swallow is part of that development. And sometimes we can see when our youngsters are going off kilter, hence we end up with a lot of kids by deferring 
that end up in feeding therapy, which is our hope. But at the same time, we know that we just cannot separate this process into smaller segments. So through my work with the Oral Motor Institute, one of the messages that we try to send out to people today is that understanding there are a lot of people that are using the terminology baby myo. Okay, so I want to clarify for everyone again that myo means muscle. That's all that term means. That's it. It refers to muscle. So when people are advertising that they're doing myotherapy on infants, I would like for them to picture I'm doing myotherapy when I take a baby who is eight weeks old, sit them up and take my hands away and expect them to sit up and they're just going to fall, right? Eight weeks old, I'm going to put you up and over and over and over until you sit up. And we know that's not going to work because the system is not ready for it. There are phases and steps that our physiological system must move through in order to facilitate this. So, you know, one of the questions that you sent me, Maddie, is how any of this has to do with cranial facial development, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't speak for everyone who is here today, but I do talk to a lot of young clinicians today. And I talk to therapists that have been at this for a while. And I know that I get the feeling like there's not a lot of educational focus on cranial facial development today. And that because there is so much to learn in grad school, the powers that be often believe this is something that you will pursue on your own. Am I wrong? I mean, you know, I learned about the craniofacial system. We discussed it for sure. But right. as far as, you know, I had to figure out on my own that when I'm treating speech and swallowing, I have to really know my anatomy and physiology. That was That's not right. made clear to me in school. No, it really isn't. And mm -hmm. we all kind of, there is something to be said that we learn with boots on the ground. And yet um, there has been a shift in perspective. So what I'm going to do real quick is, you cannot separate the swallow from general craniofacial development. So if we go back to understanding how that develops neonatally, the most important thing that I can tell people, um, and this was actually taught to me by my dear friend, an otolaryngologist or ENT, <laughs> who was having lunch with me one day. And he said, Mary, you do know Wolf's Law, right? Wolf's Law, bone needs pressure to grow, period. And so Many of us just perceive that neonatally things are just growing, 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 growing. Well, because it happens through cellular regeneration and iconoblasts and iconoclasts and how that works, but there still needs to be something that's a stabilizing pressure. So in the head, which is my focus, all right, what we know is the emergence of that tongue early, early on provides that stability. All right. And it helps to grow the roof of the mouth, to grow the jaw, to grow the bones that the teeth eventually erupt from. That's bone and that constant stabilization and movement of the tongue in its most fundamental terms. The tongue is a pump and the pumping of that tongue is what allows the basis of the cranium, the basis of the head and the neck to grow. Listen, these two muscles right here, known as your masters, essentially attach the upper and the lower jaw together, okay? It's what makes them the strongest muscles in the human body. 
And they are connected through this little disc back here, the TNJ, which allows us to shift forward and side to side and up and down. And we're always using it. And as speech pathologists, we are always using it because we're always, always talking. So if we follow that these are the strongest muscles in the body, the tongue is the second strongest muscle in the body. And that tends to blow people away. Unless you're a sixth grade boy who's come in to see me who just had it in science because his science teacher told him it was actually the strongest muscle in the body, Miss Mary. <laughs> that That's not actually accurate, okay? But that tongue bud and how it's working through conception allows by eight to 10 weeks, the whole upper primary palate is formed as well as the upper lip. We have separation from the nasal cavity and get this, the oral sensitivity, all the proprioceptive sensors for touch and pressure and temperature and pain are present by 10 weeks gestation. That's amazing when we think about it. The whole entire facial structure is in place by 12 weeks. The soft palate tissue has fused and the bones that develop cartilage have already formed. So now we actually have a cranial base and vault and we have an actual mandible and maxilla. Now we've built this whole entire system so that between 12 and 20 weeks, we start getting all these sucking reflexes, right? And they become more and more and more organized so that by 27, 28 weeks, all of the primitive reflexes like suckling and rooting and phasic bite and the transverse tongue are completely present. The one fact that I tell parents every day that blows them away is that for a typically developing fetus, they have swallowed 50% of the fluid in their amniotic sac before they deliver in their 40th week. And that's why when we talk about for years, we used to have planned deliveries or planned C-sections every week makes a difference to how those babies transition and develop healthy feeding, right? So when we look at all of the mastery and all the steps that have to change, when do we finally get to a mature swallow? Well, around three. I always do adjusted age. I have plenty of kids that have a perfect swallow by age two, but then we want to give them a little bit of time. So maybe they can get up on a bicycle. Maybe they can manage it, but eh, we just feel better because they have their training wheels on. We're going to give them a little bit more latitude. We're going to give them a little bit more time to move into it. And during all of this process, what's super, super interesting is you know what's emerging at that time? Speech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so speech kind of, and the movements that are needed for speech sort of coalesce around the maturity of all these lingual movements, these jaw movements. So one of the things that we know, if we look at a mature pattern, if we take a Maddie Medcalf and we say, okay, Maddie, I'm going to give you a glass of water. These are the movements that we would expect to see. We would expect to see a coordinated intake, right? Where your lips seal around the rim of the glass and you take that liquid in and your lips seal. They don't drop open which goes back to our suck, swallow, breathe, the buccinators and the cheeks just gently contract. So when people listen to me lecture, that's one of the biggest things that I do is I'll say, without anything in your mouth, just suck your cheeks in as tight as you can. And when you do, 
figure out where this front part of your tongue goes. What does it want to do? So let's take a second, suck those cheeks in. Where did that tongue go? Retracted. Mm-hmm. And it went, it should have gone mm-hmm. up to that alveolar bone, right? Mm-hmm. That maxillary alveolar bone. For people that think a little bit more about it, they should also feel that when we suck in the cheeks, the sides of the tongue gently come up. Mm-hmm. We feel it. So that's sort of that term that we use loosely called cupping, right? Or making a bowl. All right. So the buccinators must gently contract. The buccinators hold that food product to collect in the middle so that when that tip elevates up to that central papilla, then we gently push off of that spot and engage a whole system of muscles, which everybody can learn on my lecture, the palatoglossus, the transversus styloglossus, to create a seal. When we walk our way through social media today, everybody talks about a suction, a suction, and how long they need to be able to hold a suction and whatever. But the suction is what sort of escorts that fluid back to the oropharynx and then actually allows us to engage the rest of the swallow once it hits that pharyngeal wall, right? Mm-hmm. So when we talk about developing and understanding myofunctional disorders, the biggest question is asking me, is it the oral phase of the swallow? Well, in most cases, it definitely is because that tongue placement is out of place. And what happens predominantly and what we tend to see more is that the swallow is impacted through the chewing phase. And I find this repeatedly. I have the great pleasure of knowing a lot of the people who have presented on speech therapy PD and elsewhere, some really, really wonderful people. And I often talk to them about why We are not doing a better job in terms of educating people. How do you chew? What do we know about the chew, right? So Suzanne Evans-Morris did a great job or trying to highlight it. Lori Overland has done what she can. And I think that that is most often, if I'm doing an assessment for an oral myofunctional disorder, one of the components that's most missing. There is just a complete breakdown on how we do it. Okay. So what I want to do, if you'll bear with me, and you can feel free to ask a question if you want to, is I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm just really going to review it in a very simplified manner. And if anybody who's listening to us, it's dinner time and you happen to have something that you are munching on, you might want (laughs) to think about it while we're talking about it. But One of the lecturers who made one of the greatest impressions on me was Pam Marshalla. And I regret her loss every day. She would have made quite an impression on our younger generation of speech pathologists that are out there. But among the last lecture that I heard Pam give before she passed away, she was doing a literature review and her quote was, chewing is neuromuscular. It's a neuromuscular pattern. And the research has identified there are 22 neuromuscular movements involved in producing one effective swallow. Wow. That's a lot going on during the queue. It is. And that is when we think about no muscle works in isolation. So we Mm -hmm. talk about the eight muscles of the tongue, right? The intrinsic, the extrinsic, but we're really not addressing 
all of the hyoid, the infrahyoid, the suprahyoidal system that works right along with it, right? We're not really looking at the lip seal as part of that because we're so focused. We're tongue people, okay? So what I believe is in order for people to truly understand if this is dysfunctional, they kind of have to have some understanding of the function of the teeth, right? Every tooth in our mouth has a role. And the primary function that humans, the reason they have teeth is for mastication. So when I have teenagers that they come in and their orthodontist is them there because they have this tongue thrust thing that's going on, I will often tell them, you know what? You are not in orthodontia to be good looking. Your parents already gave you that gift. You are in orthodontia to align your teeth so their mechanics work because every tooth has a separate shape, okay? And the purpose of the teeth is to cut and mix and grind and move the food around Your tongue is your spatula when you are making brownies. That's how it serves its purpose interorally when we are chewing, right? So every tooth, every shape of the tooth, its crown and its arch mechanics and how it meets itself within the position of the mouth determines how chewing occurs. So what happens when our babies are losing their teeth? And we think about that because that's often the age that we are working with. So obviously we have our incisors. Those are our front teeth that we are also sensitive about. And they are called incisors because they mean cut. That's what it means. Your canines, some people call those your, what, your vampire teeth. Some people Mm -hmm. call it your eye teeth, whatever. But your canines are actually the cornerstone of the entire dental arch. And they help provide stability for the for where the attachment of the upper and the lower goes and they are critical for jaw dynamic okay they help control how one tooth slides on and off another all right they actually have the longest roots of any teeth and they are tightly tightly fastened to the bone we don't ever want to lose a canine we don't ever want to hear about a dentist extracting a canine, we would rather have him move something back behind so that the canines can come down. But in chewing, they tear. Let's think about a piece of beef jerky. All right. Mm -hmm. So if somebody has too sensitivity, they will often, you'll see little kids, they're going to bite over on their canine. Behind the canine are what we call the premolars or the bicuspids. There are four right? Two on the upper, two on the lower on each side for a total of eight. And these things, they're kind of flat, but they have little ridges. And what happens once we've done that and breaking it down in the canines is we kind of move the food further back. It's an assembly ride. And then we're crushing it and we're mixing it and we're crushing it until we can move it further back. And then we go to our molars. So in most cases, you know, we have six-year molars, we have 12-year molars. I'm going to stick with six-year molars because what we know is kids, if we're looking at how we go off course, kids only have 20 teeth. You, as an adult, have or did have 32, right? So because 32 includes our wisdom teeth. Do you still have your wisdom teeth? I do not. 
Okay. So sometimes orthodontists get really excited and they're looking at, oh, we just got to do the arch. So they get a little over exuberant and they take out not just the wisdoms, but they take out some of the bicuspids and then they try to pull it all together. That's called extraction orthodontics, right? To align those teeth. I mean, I'm not a big fan of that because that shrinks the bone. So the most important thing that speech pathologists need to get over is that, and there are many people, because I deal with the public every day, there is this notion that people cannot chew if they don't have teeth. That's completely flawed, right? Because the actual masticatory process within human physiology begins in the sixth month of life. The masticatory process activates within the pons of the brainstem, and that's when it starts to kick in. And Not too many babies have all their teeth at Mm -hmm. six months, right? And typically what we find is all of this chewing process is mastered before all of the primary dentition are even in place. So what's that do for our older adults? The ones who are losing their teeth because they didn't take care of them, right? Well, I've done that too. Working for years in nursing homes and trying to clean up dentures, right? But most of my patients opted not to eat with their dentures. They left them on their table side because they were uncomfortable. They still ate. They still chose to chew. And those motor patterns were still really, really there. So did you use a myofunctional approach when you were in the nursing home? Yes, without even realizing it. And I often tell people, I had this conversation with a young woman the other day that I kind of started in my dysphagia journey in the opposite direction. So I worked Mm -hmm. with with stroke. And so a lot of my people were, you know, vent dependent, peg tube dependent, and then trying to work through pharyngeal swallow issues and moving through all of that. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think that a lot of the therapeutic techniques that we used therapeutically in skilled care came with that underlying motor skill approach. But I will tell you one of my favorite stories that I tell people is I have a dear friend who, when she was a young speech pathologist, trained directly under Jerry Logeman. Do you know that name? I do. So Jerry Logeman, obviously, is iconic in our profession. There are people (laughs) who say she saved our profession in the 1980s because of her work in working with dysphagia. And my friend worked side by side with her, and she's still working today. She ran a hospital where I worked PRN. And this young woman taught me everything I needed to know about modified barium swallow and video fluoroscopy. And we remained very good friends. And as the years went by and my practice grew, she knew I always worked with myofunctional disorders, so she would never accept them on the hospital caseload and she would send people over to me. But eventually I got too busy to come and work with her. And after I'd done my training, she asked me to if she could come and watch. She goes, I just kind of want to see what you're doing. I need to get this piece of the puzzle. So she did. She came in and watched a colleague and I do an oral facial myofunctional assessment on a probably, I don't know, a 12-year-old. We're just going to say it was a 12-year-old. She sat very quietly during the whole thing. And when it was over, the people left for the day and we locked the door and I turned to her and I said, so what do you think? And she said, oh my God. And I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) And she said, where has this been? Where? Has this piece of the puzzle been? Why haven't we, as speech pathologists working in hospitals, acute care, everywhere, 
been looking at the oral phase of the swallow to help our patients transition back to a solid diet instead of leaving them on thickened liquids and purees. So yeah. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature? The certificate tracker. The free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. I did a rotation in a sniff and I was a little bit blown away. Well, I didn't realize how complex the oral phase of the swallow was until I got into my myofunctional trainings. And I was like, oh man, it's not just like prepares it, it goes down. And then the pharyngeal phase is where the magic happens. There's a lot of magic that happens in the Mm -hmm. oral phase, but we never touched how they were chewing or how they were collecting the bolus or any of that stuff. When I was in Mm -hmm. my rotation there, we focused so much on the pharyngeal phase. And I just think back to that time and I wonder how different would some of those patients' diets been, would their oral functioning have been if we would have taken a step Mm -hmm. back and kind of looked at that oral phase a little bit more. If we had looked at the oral phase, there's a better than even chance that the pharyngeal phase, the modifications would have been slight to assist. Obviously, there are always, always, always unfortunate cases where they've suffered a significant neurological impairment of the epiglottis. That makes it difficult for us, or their esophageal reflux is so bad that we can't keep it contained down within the esophagus. But for the most part, I still carry the faces of those patients in my memory of those that I can think about that it would have really made a difference for. So to review, I want everybody to just think about how do we take a bite and think about every movement that needs to go through. So, you know, we take a bite. Sometimes we take a big bite, like a big burger. So we've separated our lips. So our labial system is involved. Okay. And then what do we do? We're going to take a bite of whatever it is. We bite into it. And now we're moving it to the canines and it's kind of mushing it down and it's mixing and moving with the saliva. And then it kind of moves back to the bicuspids and it breaks down a little bit and the jaw kind of starts to shift it a little diagonal side to side, back and forth. There goes that spatula in the bowl, bringing it closer to closer and it continues to move back and forth and back and forth, but it's really back in the molars. And this is why that chew can take up to age three, where the molars really start to rotate. And that's where that term rotary chew comes from. And the upper and the lower begins to go like this, the mortar and the pestle. The cheeks have to be tight because the buccinators It's like your core, it's your belly, right? So it keeps the food on the surfaces, the clusal surfaces of the teeth, and then it helps it move on to the tongue. First, it stabilizes. Then when we want to collect it, those cheeks will just slightly retract, all right? And that pulls it to the tongue. And then the tongue tip elevates up to that central papilla to create what we refer to, this is a term that came out of my class called tip anchorage. (laughs) We need to anchor that tongue on that bone. And so once that happens and it 
what we do is we push on that bone. Did you know this bone is designed to take pressure? It's designed to take pressure. And so our tongue pushes against that bone. And that's what allows us to have a safe onset and create lingual palatal seal. And we just squeeze that food product back. That's how it works. We're not talking gummy worms here. We need a bolus. It's a round block. Instead, what I see in most of my patients is the food collects in their cheek like a chipmunk or a pelican, right? I have seen people where particles collect underneath their tongue. Ow, that can't always feel good. So typically what happens is people are chewing, storing in their cheeks, and then they're rolling, they're overcompensating because they can't flex those cheek muscles. They're rolling those lips inward. All right. They're flattening out that tongue. That's one example. We're going to talk a little bit more about some others. And they're swallowing that way. And it's not a cohesive bolus. It's a mixed bolus everywhere. And you will see scatter. That's why we have people open their mouth after they swallow, because we can see scatter all over the tongue. The residual is still there. And so it can often tell us. Mm -hmm. So One of the biggest questions that you had for me was what kind of an impact does swallow have on dental facial development? So we've clearly already covered how that happens neonatally, right? That constant pumping of the tongue up and down and then moving. One of my favorite stories I tell people is that thumb sucking gets such a bad rap anytime we see any kind of noxious habits. And I have a speech pathologist that worked for me for about 14 years. When she was expecting her first baby, she brought the baby son, Graham, in, and she was so disturbed. Said, what? And this is so exciting. It's a baby. And she goes, don't you see it? Don't you see it? Don't you see it? Her dad is a dentist, by the way. Okay. And I said, what? And she said, Mary, he's sucking his thumb. My dad is going to kill me. I'm having a thumb sucker. Well, what we know is all babies suck their thumb in utero. That's normal, healthy development. And what we know is that babies, if they lack that coordination, if their body is positioned in such a position, such a way that they can't easily move and manipulate and put their fingers or their toes in their mouth to suck on, their suck does not fully develop. Those reflexes do not fully develop or integrate through the birthing process. So sucking in utero is important. It's just when we come out into the real world that we don't really need to. And that sucking helps facilitate bone growth because bone responds to load, okay? Mm -hmm. A lot of people will ask me about different shapes in babies' mouths, about how come it's so high, how come it's so this. And a lot of times that's just a neonatal anomaly. I had a little girl who came in who was perfectly normal. But when she opened her mouth, we were checking her because her brother was tongue tied. I saw a palate I had never seen before. I swear to you, it was so high. It was so narrow. It looked like this kid was walking around with a cleft. So I took a picture of it and I sent it to my ear, nose and throat physician. And I'm like, what am I looking at here, doc? And his response was, well, that's interesting. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I thought so too. And Why is it too? <laughs> yeah. So, so, I need a little bit more than that, Doc. And he said, it looks like it could, there's some chance it's probably a normal midline defect. Is that a term that speech pathologists in this group 
would normally think of. Because when we hear midline defect, we're thinking something is wrong. But there are all different in cranial facial and bone growth. There are all different types of midline normal. And his perception was, she doesn't have this. She doesn't have this. He goes, it's it's interesting. It's challenging. It's midline normal. He said, there's some small possibility she might have a cleft of the nasal floor. Again, understanding that the roof of the mouth is not the floor of the nose. They are two separate bones that bump up to each other. So it's possible to have a cleft within the nasal floor as well. Hmm. So this I is- Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that we learn about when we start looking at the cranial impact, okay? I'm more focused on dental facial, and that's because it's super important to understand that we all have 32 teeth, kids end up with 20 primary teeth, but they lose them. So then we move into what we call mixed dentition, and if we're missing parts of our engine, how is it going to function correctly, right? Because remember, we said every tooth has a job, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're missing teeth, how does that come into play? And I think the important part here is it's usually when we talk about significant dental facial changes, it's not something that they were born with. It's something that occurs, a compensation that they have developed for another weakness within our systems. Does that include class three or malocclusions or underbites? I believe so. I've seen plenty mm-hmm. of them that we call functional, right? Sure. So dental facial development is this age that we are working on. People become super hyperfocused, parents in particular, because we want our children to look perfect and be perfect and think perfect. And often they become fixated on the little spaces in teeth. In a little kid in primary teeth, we typically don't mind seeing space. That means the bone is big. That means as the other teeth start to erupt, there's going to be plenty of room. For me, the dental facial development happens in the jaw growth and the changes in the facial jaw. And that's exactly what you are talking about right now. So. When we ask if somebody has an OMD, what type of swallow deficit would they present with? And I want to preface this comment by saying, you know what? There's a whole lot of information that has been written and not written about an oral myofunctional disorder. Mm. And I have an old rare book collection. It drives my husband crazy because another book comes, but they're all rare books. Most of them are not in print. So I like to think that I have read more than 90% of the works that have been produced. And what I have seen historically in the written literature, and I know this is certainly true for our friends at ASHA, is that they are hyper-focused on thrusting pattern of the tongue, okay? But in reality, oral myofunctional disorders are much broader than that and are defined as disorders of the jaw the lips, the tongue, and even general body posture that negatively impact the developing or existing oral facial structures, okay? So I can take 
a 22-year-old in this group who's a grad student who's listening, who just got involved in an automobile accident where she was broadsided, who ends up with a TMJ problem where she's got a lot, she's going to end up with an oral myofunctional disorder. They can develop neonatally, they can be present, but sometimes they're caused by other things. So in order to figure that out, that's why oral myofunctional disorders I will often teach in my courses is a 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. And just, you know, we get the frame together and we have a pretty good idea. And now we've got a whole section. Look how much progress we're making. I've got this part. I've got this part, but what's going on over here? Mm -hmm. There's always something. And the way we pull these pieces together is to understand that oral myofunctional disorders can stem from deficits in airway, whether it's the structure of the airway or a breathing pattern our mouth breathing kids, it's impacted by body posture. So when we have kids that are disabled, we have a body posture problem. Can they hold their head and their neck up? Do they have shoulder girdle? Do they have head and neck strength? What's going on with their core stability? And if they're not and they don't have it, how does that affect your ability to swallow? It includes the jaw. What's going on with the jaw? So some, there are people who have skeletal class threes, Maddie, which is where this ramus bone starts to extend and grow longer than the maxillary bone. That is a real thing. It's rare. I've probably, I've lost count, but I can tell you about two years ago, I was going through records. And I stopped in the year 2018 because I was up to over 5,000 evaluations that I had done. So I think I probably superseded that. So I've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of patients. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that most of the class threes most likely started on a functional basis when the child was small. The ones that were truly genetic, the bone is just growing long, are rare. That's not to say I haven't seen them because I have. And I've actually seen them in toddlers. So it's pretty obvious. All right. But these myofunctional disorders can cause by weaknesses in the lips and the cheeks. And from there, we move from the tongue and what kind of deficits are going on there? What kind of anomalies until we finally get to the swallow. So that's Mm -hmm. what my lecture that you were talking about when I do my 10 and a half hour here on speech therapies, it takes you through all of those modalities until you finally Mm -hmm. get to the crux of this is what I need to treat. Yes. Right. It's like the top of the iceberg. We can't do that. We can't stop. And I see this consistently with people because of how we bill, right? Mm -hmm. They feel obligated to put food or liquid in someone's mouth because they're working on swallowing. Right. And that is incorrect. You are working a system that is not yet ready. Exactly. To do that. Right. So Having the correct development of the entire complex is what prepares the space also for the ongoing development of speech and speech sound placement. Mm -hmm. The tongue only has so much room to work. And if we have this little, tiny, narrow space, there's no room for the tongue to position itself. So you're going to modify I have a friend who's a physical therapist and she says, man is the most adaptive species on the planet. And I think that she is right. Second to cockroaches. <laughs> so where there's a will, there's a way. So mm-hmm. if you think about this with your kiddos that you're over and over and over trying to 
work with and repeat the same thing over and over, especially with an S, but his structure won't let that happen or his physiology. Where are we going? Okay. So what I'm going to do, because I know we've only got a few minutes left, Mm -hmm. is I'm going to summarize this because you asked me what's a tongue thrust and a horizontal swallow pattern. Right. So here's something that you may not know. I have never read the term horizontal swallow pattern. Don't know where it came from. That was a new one on me because I've read a lot of Mm -hmm. them. But I want to say to everybody, I hate the word tongue thrust. I don't like it. I've been working and specializing in this field specifically from this stage for over 15 years. And the reason I don't like it is because it only identifies one single issue from a disorder that has many, 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 many symptoms. So Mm -hmm. I don't just treat a swallow. I treat the entire disorder. And so I tongue thrust is based on decades old terminology. So it is something we want to correct. But historically, in the literature, Hansen and Barrett were two men who founded the IAOM that were both academic based SLPs. And they were fascinated. They identified eight different types of tongue thrusting pattern. Do you know why? Because the only people who would talk to them back then were orthodontists. They wanted, they were seeing the impact of this frontal swallow, all right? Just like reverse swallow is another one. There's no such thing as a reverse swallow. What's reversing is the mandible is moving backwards, right? And that's only one type of atypical swallow. So when Hansen and Barrett wrote their book, you know, they showed the classic one with the tongue Mm -hmm. coming between the teeth. They discussed the dispersing where the tongue kind of spreads itself around the dentition. They discussed the lower dentition where the tongue perches down here. Now, if you're always putting the pressure of your tongue tip down here, what is this right here? This is the junction of the mandible. That's bone pressure over and over. That's where we talk about functional class three, right? They identified another one as bimaxillary protrusion which is sometimes we're going to see these incisors are slightly reclined, the canines are slightly forward. And so the tongue is right there, but it spreads wide. They talked about open bited swallow where it basically comes all the way through to the lips like this, Mm -hmm. like a cork, and we just seal it closed by a unilateral bite where the tongue is pushing to one side and coming between the dentition. You notice I keep using the word bite, bite, bite. Uh I'm using bite because they're referring to the malocclusion and how the malocclusion develops itself. This kind of goes back to if your dentition doesn't support what the tongue needs to do, then you're going to have dysfunction. Yeah. Understanding the dentition gives you the clues to know what the tongue is doing. Unless you are doing this even I know people who actually got sent in to have a modified barium swallow to identify a tongue thrust. That's when my friend kept saying, no, you need to go see Mary because we don't do that here. And why would we do that? Because a modified barium swallow, unless you're doing an anterior posterior view instead of a sagittal, it's not going to show you anything. And we don't really give people anything to masticate in a modified barium swallow. So we don't do it that way. So that's where that whole term tongue thrust came about. But when we do this with our assessment, it's like the last five minutes of our assessment Mm -hmm. to see how these atypical movements that we're seeing and how that coordination manifests itself. 
And so in a good therapy program, are we going to work with the oral phase? Of course we are. And believe it or not, we introduce these concepts for oral coordination in kids as young as two and a half if we think they need it in therapy, but always it's a side-by-side approach when we're working with kids that are three and up. Do they have language? Uh Uh-huh. Do they have speech issues? Uh Mm Uh-huh. They have all of it, but we're doing all of it because we know the oral phase is under volitional control. And we know that we have to break it down in little pieces. So when you were an itty bitty and your dad wanted you to learn how to play basketball, first he put the ball in your hand so that you were not afraid and would teach you how to go up and down. And then he would teach you how to run with it going up and down. And then he would teach you how to stop and catch the ball and then throw. Those are the little tiny components that we have to break things down in order to build successful neuromuscular patterns. So those good programs don't just jump into swallowing. We work on swallowing, but usually it's when we're three quarters of the way through our program. And it's a very very short period of time that they can show through through mastery. So we achieve coordination, always rest posture, variances in food products, and ensure that we have patient compliance and habituation. That's what resolves an oral malfunctional disorder. So for that disordered transit of the swallow, if you don't uh-huh. like tongue stress or horizontal swallow pattern, as I was taught by someone... What is your like classification for that in your... I always, 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 first and foremost, refer to what I am treating as an oral myofunctional Mm -hmm. disorder. And then within that, I'm addressing the oral phase of the swallow. Okay. Does that make sense to you? But I don't call it, I'm not treating a tongue thrust. I don't diagnose it as a tongue thrust. When I talk to parents, I take them back and take them through every single system and delineate it. Guess how we got here? And this is what we're seeing. And now, because it's been happening, we did a 24-year-old athlete today who has so much facial pain, right? And head and neck and shoulder pain. And her hyoid is sitting all the way up here, Mm. way too high. The strain builds up. And that's why oral myofunctional disorders are so important because for every age, they lead to a cascade of dysfunction. We can deal with it for a really, really long time. But eventually, if we're moving atypically, it's going to show up in the body. So sometimes it shows up as speech. And sometimes it shows up as open bite. And sometimes it shows up when people just stop eating because they feel pain. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it shows up in voice disorders Mm -hmm. because their hyoid is so high. There's so much strain that they're putting on their vocal cords. Many, many layers to this onion that Mm -hmm. people have to unwrap. So I guess like my specific question was, so whenever I'm like writing my summary section on my reports, I'll say this patient exhibits Mm -hmm. a severity level orofacial myofunctional disorder. And then I list like the signs and symptoms. What led me to think that? And then I also have to refer it back to speech and swallowing because a lot of my patients are Medicaid patients and I have to like get it under that speech or swallowing. And so I list out... They lack jaw-tongue dissociation, lingual coordination, Mm -hmm. lingual shaping. And then I get into the, if they have any Mm -hmm. respiration issues or signs of sleep disorder breathing. And then I go into the characteristics of their swallow. So they have, you know, poor suction on a cup. They have poor collection. They have a lack of rotary chew or bone collection. And then that's whenever I would put in that 
tongue thrust swallow mm-hmm. is part of that. So is it okay to use it in that context of describing the disorder in that phase of the oral swallow? So this is me. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of skeptical and I'm really careful. I don't ever use the word tongue thrust in care planning, mostly because I work with health insurance companies and they look for it as a red flag. And the minute they Mm -hmm. see it, they kick it out. Sadly, to date, because it's so broad, there's no definitive diagnosis for oral myofunctional disorders. And myofunctional disorders have been clumped into a field where they are considered cosmetic because tongue thrust meant dentition. But we're not working with dentitians. So there are certain mm-hmm. ICD-10 codes and I have dialogues. My good friend, Linda D'Onofrio, and I sat for a whole night one time at a conference arguing. And, you know, <laughs> she's not quiet. We argued this over and over that the codes that she's using are dental-based codes. And people at insurance companies don't know the difference. They just know that this is delineated, so they're not going to cover it. Mm-hmm. So I tend not to use the word tongue thrusting ever. I tend to describe the pattern, Right. And where they're stabilizing, or mostly I tend to describe what's missing. There's no tip anchorage. There's no lingual stabilization. There's no suction that's occurring. There's no rotary chew, right? Those are things that health plans can wrap their heads around because swallowing is a fundamental. It's a major medical. It's a fundamental to human survival and human success. And when they've certainly seen this when we have, you know, I have a 25 year old I'm working with right now who has stopped eating literally because it hurts to swallow. He's 25 mm-hmm. and down to 80 pounds. Oh my God. Are we waiting until we put him on a G tube? And wouldn't it have been better if he had come to see me six months before when this pain started, right? Mm-hmm. So that's my personal choice. I saw a post from someone recently on Facebook just a week or so ago who said that her boss refused to allow her to use the code 92526 for dealing with oral phase dysphagia because they were not feeding the child. My response to that is, it's unfortunate that this is your boss because she clearly is not educated in what's involved within Mm -hmm. that coding. It's been oversimplified. Right. We do have a couple of questions. So Kate M says that she works with over 25 school-based SLPs and none of them know how to do a quality oral facial myofunctional (laughs) assessment. Hello, that was me a couple of years ago. She (laughs) says that she's been struggling with improving this aspect of her practice. She's found scattered PD courses, but still doesn't feel confident in documenting her observations and interpretations. So Mary, do you have any recommendations for books, protocols, trainings to help us conduct consistent high quality oral facial myofunctional assessments? Okay. That's a, a that's one. a tough one. I'm going to be releasing a new course on my Function Focus Academy that deals specifically with diagnostics and walking people through a better diagnostic assessment. I feel like a lot of times when people take our class, they want to see a hands-on evaluation. And then we've done that before. But unfortunately, again, this is an onion And so sometimes the patients that we see, the signs are very, very subtle. I would, as a school-based SLP, I would go back and look at every single one of the systems that are identified in my lecture here on Speech Therapy PD. They're obviously a member, all right? Mm -hmm. Go back and review that for what constitutes airway, where's the jaw problem, focusing Airway and jaw are the two biggest ones for kids in schools right now that actually got you to their caseload. 
Yes, because of that, they have a lingual and a lingual coordination problem. It is definitely there. But kids that are sitting in mouth breathing constantly are doing it because we're living in a world full of allergies and food allergies that have been Mm -hmm. undiagnosed and allergies that parents just flat out refuse to treat. I have so much empathy for my colleagues who work in the schools right now because they're so overwhelmed and so overloaded. And we're dealing with a different generation of parents who just don't really want to hear it. We've become a generation, we're frankly afraid of entering our medical system because there's always another horror story. And I can empathize with that. But at the same time, we can't ignore it and expect that we're just going to work on this sound and it's just going to go away because this parent will pay attention. We have to work on some of those issues. And then just from my own trainings, I've found speech therapy PD to be so great. I took Mary's 10 and a half hour course on here and learned so much. It was fabulous. It doesn't necessarily walk you through how to do a craniofacial examination or a myofunctional exam. But from what I found, there's not a specific protocol that gives you all the answers. It's really like building your knowledge base on what is typical. There are intensive studies. We cover every bit of this in our intensive studies course. Mm -hmm. Um, It's 40 hours there where there's 12 hours online and then there's a four day live. And we take everybody through every single Mm -hmm. component. But we also understand that not everybody can get that time and not everybody can afford to do that learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, Char Beauchart, she also has a podcast on Therapy PD, and I don't know if her, she's still selling her product, but years ago, Shar wrote a basic book that was extremely helpful. It was like oral motor analysis. I'm not quite sure if she has it. It wasn't something that was tongue thrust. It was specific to oral facial myofunctional disorders, and it talked about how your cranial facial development goes, how all of these patterns move alongside speech sound because that's where Char's focus was as well. Sometimes you can still find those types of guides on Amazon. It might be a little pricey because they're mostly out of print, but I know that she's done some good work worth reading. So I did take a 28-hour myofunctional course and it was super great and it definitely gave me my foundation. And then I've just done a lot of things to supplement it. But I just, Char's book, The Myofunctional Evaluation, I just shared that link. That was a really great tool that I use starting off. So helpful. It really does like walk you through it. She has a great way of writing that brings it down into simplistic Mm -hmm. terms for for sure. sure. But I think that there are those of us who teach are not necessarily putting out shortcuts to how to do an evaluation just predominantly because there's so much information that you need to have in order to make sure it's a proper assessment. You can use this even just what you have with mine and make it part of your screening rather than a complete thorough assessment. But this work from Char is a good way to fill in some of those gaps. Certainly had colleagues who've reached out to me have told me that they've read that and it would be a good resource. Mm -hmm. But yes, it is a rabbit hole, isn't it, Maddie? Once you take the class, it opens your brain and you're like, but what about this? And this is where when people, like somebody said, I've I've seen this in my kiddo with Soto syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yes. In my practice, we tend to get the kids that nobody else wants to work with anymore because they don't even know where to start. But we can, as long as we understand the anatomy and the physiology and how it works together. 
We have another question that's a little bit bigger, but where you work is the OT involved in the oral phase? I've heard that many OTs own the oral phase and then SLPs own the rest of the phases. I know it's a ton of collaboration, but curious how it's split for the most part. Okay. So that's a really tough question because I know some really fantastic OTs and I happen to have two in my family. So (laughs) here's what I know. Occupational therapy has changed just like speech pathology has changed. When I was working for years side by side with OTs, OTs were in functional ADLs. So feeding came from hand to mouth and working with adaptive equipment so that people could self-feed. Somewhere in the interim, OTs and Marsha Dunn-Klein was really involved with this in early EI where OTs began to see, well, it's sensory feeding and poor feeding and lack of feeding and picky eating is a sensory issue. And I'm not going to disagree with that. What I find though, and what's often overlooked, and I've had this discussion with some really great OTs, by the way, is that they're so hyper fixated on the sensory that they don't know anything about the motor and how the motor system is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. So I don't care how the grass feels. I need to know that the blade on the lawnmower is going to cut the grass to the length I need before I can get the feel that I need with my feet, right? So I have never heard that OTs own the oral phase. I don't agree with it. I don't believe it. I think that in my city, at my children's hospital, OTs are the only ones that do the modified barium swallows. So if that's the case, how is it possible that they're not allowed to look at the pharyngeal phase? If they're the ones that are being recruited to do all the modified barium swallows, I just think that there's been a lot of cross-pollination between the fields. And I have a colleague actually who has been accepted to Northwestern for her PhD. And that's one of her programs that she's going to do for her dissertation is to lay out the background and training and what qualifies someone to work in the field versus someone else. And I'm not picking on OTs by any means. It's just that there are lactation specialists, dental assistants, psychologists, social workers, and many, many, many other allied professionals working with Swallow who have no education or groundedness in being able to work within the field. Mm. And that should be a concern for our next generations of SLPs. Mary, this is fabulous. After taking so many of your courses and learning from you. So thank you so much for your time this evening. This was great, and I hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you all for hanging around and listening to us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you all so much. Thanks for joining us at SLP Learning Series. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. If you like this and want to hear more, we are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word SLP Learn for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today.